0: I remember being on the school bus on the way to school one wintry Indiana morning, and I heard a phrase that I had never heard before. Actually, on the school bus, I probably heard a lot of phrases I had never heard before. But it was afraid. It's also a word, and so that's a little complicated. So instead of spelling out the word for some reason, we decided to remove the last two L's at the end of the word and replace them with hockey sticks. Now, mind you, I have never played one second of ice hockey. I've actually never been ice skating ever and I'm not about to start now, to be honest with you. Nevertheless, H-E-Double Hockey Sticks was our chosen way to get around the rule of not saying any bad words. Now, I actually looked up where the term H-E-Double Hockey Sticks comes from and at a quick glance, at least, no one really knows. Probably because it was made up on some playground somewhere. There are alternatives like H-E-Double Toothpicks for those who aren't into sports, I guess. And there's also a Disney made-for-TV movie made in 1999 called H-E-Double Hockey Sticks about a demon taking over the soul of a hockey player. I didn't look. Maybe it's on Disney+. Plus. I mean, go enjoy uh, watching that since the Colts aren't in the playoffs. (laughs) Now, maybe you were too sophisticated for the H-E-Double Hockey Sticks route. Maybe you just punched the number uh, 7734 into the calculator and turned it upside down. And we're like, hell, that's hilarious. Look at this, friends, right? (laughs) See, the reality is we don't really know what to do with this term. And sometimes we look around at like global events and stuff and we we go, yep, looks like we're going to hell in a handbasket. And the word hell gets thrown around a little bit. And sometimes we're a little flippant about it. Now this summer, I was driving in town and I made a right-hand turn onto a main road. Someone didn't like it. Probably because I cut them off. Nah, 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 I understand. But I, I uh, pulled up to the stoplight and they pulled up next to me. My window was down because it was a nice day. Their window was down and they said the words, go to hell. And you would be really proud of me because I did not say any of the first things that came to mind <laughs> like you first or like see you there or <laughs> anything like that. I just said, I looked at them and I shook my head and said, no. We don't actually know what to do with this concept of, of hell. We don't know how to interact with it. Sometimes it seems confusing or sometimes it seems like a fairy tale, or a little silly or sometimes it seems harsh or sometimes it seems scary. So here's my hope today. This isn't going to be a fire and brimstone message that's, you know, just me hitting you over the head with a Bible and screaming scary phrases. It's not like that. But still, I think it is worth our time to kind of try and understand what hell is and what hell isn't, and why it matters to understand what hell is and isn't. Now, we're in a series, and we've been calling that series Beyond a Shadow of a Doubt. And we've been talking about things that give us pause in our relationship with Jesus. So we've talked about what doubt is and what doubt isn't, and how it fits into faith. We've also talked about one of the leading causes of doubt is actually Christians and how Christians interact with each other and other people, and it causes church hurt, and that causes people to doubt. So what does hell have to do with doubt? Well, actually, according to a study done by Pew Research, done in 2021, so not that long ago, when asking Americans about heaven and hell, 74% of Americans say that believe in heaven in some way, shape, or form. 62%, almost two in three, say they believe in hell. So it's not that people don't necessarily believe in it, at least generically, but the struggle comes, even in conversations that I have with people, the struggle comes when a very specific question is being asked when we're thinking about hell. So here's the question. Maybe you've asked this before. Why would a loving God send people to hell? So do you see where the question comes from? So maybe you're reading your Bible. And in your Bible, it says something like, God is love and we should love other people. And then you read, people who don't know Jesus will burn forever in a lake of fire. Well, there will be gnashing of teeth. That's actually a quote from the Bible. That's Revelation 20.10. So why would a God who claims to be loving, not even that, who claims he is love itself, Send people to eternal damnation. How does that coexist? How do we navigate this? So I want to say, this is actually a really important question and it's a good question and we're going to try to answer it. But you might be thinking, I have never asked that question. Well, now you are because we're talking about it here. Sorry about that. Or you, you might think you know your answer to this question and, th- and that's okay. That's not a bad thing. Here's what I would say. This question is important though because of the phrase that comes right after this question. So we say, why would a loving God send people to hell? And then we add, because if he sends people to hell, then he's either not powerful enough to defeat evil, or he's actually not that loving in the first place. Now, This is a big topic and we're not going to get into all the nooks and all the crannies of the theology of hell and everything that comes with it today. So if you Google the question, yeah, you'll find a lot of answers. There are actually 30 million answers and hits that come back when we Google, why would a loving God send people to hell? But what we're going to do today is do our best to kind of build a foundation to navigate the doubt that comes along with this question. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus actually talks a lot about hell. And that's kind of confusing because Jesus is also like the most loving and yet he talked about it. And I believe that every time Jesus talked about hell, it wasn't really a scare tactic. It was more helping us understand and helping to motivate us to have a full relationship with him. I believe that Jesus didn't want people to go to hell. He wanted people to have a right relationship with God and go to heaven. So we're going to take a look at a story from Jesus. It's from Luke 16. And we can learn, I think, some things from this story and maybe especially when it comes to this question. So here's the context of this parable, this story that Jesus tells. Jesus said, there's a known rich guy. Like everybody would have known who the rich guy was. And he was dressed really well and he lived life very comfortably. I mean, he was like the epitome of success. Actually, he dressed so well that he could have fed somebody for a year if he had sold one of his robes and given it to the poor. And on his front doorstep, outside his gate, a poor man named Lazarus, who was really sick and covered in sores, laid there and begged for scraps from his table like a dog. As a matter of fact, Lazarus was so sick that dogs would come up and they would lick his open sores then both of these guys died. The rich man and the poor man. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. This is Luke 16, starting in verse 22. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit, behind, sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. Now, the place of the dead could also be translated as Hades. Hades was actually a common word that was related to the place of the dead or the place of punishment. So the poor guy dies and everybody would have related to this term of the place of the dead. It wouldn't have shocked them at all. But the poor guy dies and is seated by the most one of the most important people in the Jewish faith. Abraham. He actually started kind of that whole journey. And if you got the rich guy in torment and you got The poor guy in heaven, and then this happened. So there in torment, the rich guy saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. And the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, you guys know that song? This is not where it comes from. (laughs) Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. Please, is what he's saying. Please, somebody, help me in my suffering. Have pity. Send Lazarus. I know Lazarus. I recognize Lazarus. Send him to give me relief. I'm in anguish. I'm in agony. I'm in torment. So I want to stop and I'm going to point out something right now because this is not a particularly pleasant story. The rich guy and the poor guy actually have some history, right? They would have known each other by sight. They might've even known each other's name. Actually, Lazarus laid on the rich guy's front porch outside his gate. He got the same treatment as a dog. And yet here they are, one in heaven and one in hell. And the rich man is still asking for preferential treatment. He's still saying, hey, like help me out. Lazarus, help me out. And Abraham answers the rich guy and he says, no. This is verse 25, Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. That's a loaded phrase because one of the reasons Lazarus had nothing was because of the rich guy. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. So the rich guy is aware of what's going on and he understands how big of a deal this is and he understands that the situation is fixed. It's permanent. And Abraham says, hey, it's it's not going to happen. What you want to happen isn't going to happen. It can't happen because of your behavior on earth, but also because of your relationship with God. And this story is gut-wrenching. So as a side note, think about it the next time you tell somebody or even think to somebody, go to hell. Those are, those are actually pretty serious words. Then verse 27, then the rich man said, okay, okay, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home for I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. So will you please tell everybody I know, my brothers, my family, my friends, that they need to change their life so that they don't end up Here. And Abraham says, hey, they already have the opportunity to know this. They've already had the opportunity to learn this, to follow God. But the rich man begs because he's in a different position now. And he says this in verse 30, the rich man replied, no, Father, amen, but if somebody is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and they'll turn to God. See, he's begging, he's pleading, he knows the situation. He goes, I understand that we need to be made right with God. I understand that I didn't do that. So can I haunt them? Can Lazarus haunt them and scare them into believing maybe? And Abraham says, no. If they don't listen to God, they won't listen to someone who rises from the dead and haunts them. The end of the story. So let's pray and we'll move on to, no, we won't do that. We won't do that. But it's not a fun story at all. You probably aren't gonna tell this at your next dinner party. And if you do, we probably need to have a conversation. So what can we learn from a story kind of like this? Because it's not a fairy tale. This is a, called a parable. It's a story with a point, with a purpose that Jesus is telling. So what is the point? Well, I think that there are several, but we're gonna talk about this really in the context of hell today and some things that we can learn about hell from Jesus. Here are a couple of things from Luke 16 we can learn. Here's the first one. The rich man was in a real place. He had a memory. He was hurting. It was real. Jesus had the opportunity to say it wasn't real. He didn't do that. This wasn't an imaginary place that Jesus is using to pretend. He even used a word that everybody understands what it meant in context. So the rich man was in a real place, I believe. I believe hell is real. Here's the second thing. The rich man was in hell permanently. There was no option to get relief, no option to get water. Abraham even was like, hey, we don't give out hall passes. Like you can't come over here and hang out for the day and then go back. There's also no option to like pay your dues and file an appeal. We kind of like that in our justice system. Like we go like, hey, you do it for a little while and then, and then get out. It was an eternal place. So a real place, but an eternal place too. Here, here's the third thing. The rich man also knew his suffering was just, that it was fair. Now I've read this story a couple of times leading up to today and I am struck by what the rich man doesn't say. Now I'm gonna gonna tread carefully because we need to be careful about what the Bible explicitly says and implicitly says and, and all that type of stuff. There are some things that the Bible doesn't explicitly say that I think is true. But in this context, he doesn't ask or say the things that I would ask or say. Here's what I mean. He does not ask, God, why did you allow this? Doesn't ask it. He doesn't ask, "God, did you make a mistake? This isn't fair." Doesn't ask that. That's what we think today. That's what we think on this side of things, but he doesn't ask that. Why doesn't he ask that? I think he asked that because he knew it was fair and he knew it was just. Now he complained about the pain and he complained about trying to get out, but he did not complain about injustice. He knew it was fair. And here's really what brings this home. Here's why I'm just sure that he knew it was fair. Because he did the fourth thing. The rich man begged for someone to help his family know Jesus. He knew what was up. That's important. The rich man pleaded for someone to help his family. Someone go tell them the truth. Go tell them to follow God. Go tell them how terrible it is here. Go tell them so that they don't suffer like this. But still sometimes we go, man... This seems so harsh. Shouldn't he have gotten a second chance? And why is God just so strict about this? So here's an analogy that might help a little bit. Imagine you're a decorated member of the Coast Guard. And you're on a mission that is searching for survivors of a sunken cruise ship. So you see a passenger out there bobbing in the water. And the passenger is struggling in the waves and the current behind them, and you throw a lifeline out to the passenger. But he just shakes his head vehemently, no, and he refuses to grab onto the line. So you call out and you beg and you reason and you just cry and you pray and you just ask him, take hold of the rope to save your life. But he ignores your plea. He shakes his head. He struggles in the waves and eventually he sinks below the waves They crash against him, and he drowns. Here's my question. Does the fact that this man drowned mean that you don't love him? Because that's what we do when we put God in that place. Does the fact that this man drowned by his own choice mean that you didn't do everything that you could? Of course not. The person's in the water for whatever reason chose not to grab the lifeline and he refused the help. And his drowning, though desperately sad, was the consequence of his choice. And I think that's similar to God's love and our situation. Romans 3.23 says it like this. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. We, we use this verse sometimes. This is a great definition of sin, falling short of God's glorious standard. Everyone has sinned. And I think sometimes we think things like, well, I mean, I guess. Like, yeah, but I'm kind of a good person. Like, I, I, I go to church and I help people out and, you know, like, I do what I'm supposed to do. Give me a break, man. But think about it. Have you ever lied? Ever? And we've fallen short of God's. I mean, you haven't. You haven't told a lie about liking somebody's haircut. I guarantee you, you have. <laughs> have you ever stolen anything? Like even time from an employer? Have you ever lusted after something that wasn't yours? Sex, yes, but lust means anything that wasn't yours, like money or or power or relationships or or anything. Rock and roll, whatever. I mean, fill in the blank. Everyone has sinned and we're drowning in our own sin and we're in trouble apart from God and we need his help. See, that's why I think it's important to understand what heaven is and what hell is and what Jesus is all about. Because we're drowning, we need the lifeline, right? We need to be rescued whether we accept the help or not, but it's our choice. God has made his choice. Remember, he is love. So he said, I love you so much that I'm gonna send Jesus. And God is holy and just and His justice is perfect and He must punish sin and it's unacceptable. But He doesn't just send us to hell like the question says. He loves us. He is love. In Romans 5, 8, in that same book of the Bible, it says, But God showed His great love for us by... Sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's side by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. This phrase, while we were still sinners, I mean, it gets me. Right smack dab in the middle of the bad choice. Jesus and his death on the cross pays the price for our sins, satisfies God's justice. And saves us, like it says, from condemnation. That the very person of Jesus coming to earth really reminds us that God is love and that the cross and that the empty tomb is putting on display God's amazing, marvelous, awesome, perfect, unquenchable love for us while we were still sinners. And 2 Peter 3.9 says it like this, and this is a hope-filled verse. I love this verse. The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, His promise of making everything right and coming and, and the end of the world, like in Revelation, the end of the New Testament. The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some people think. No, He is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. See, we are drowning, and God sends us the lifeline, and He's patient because He wants to help. For our sake, we're the ones who sin. We're the ones who fall short. And God loves us so much he sends Jesus. So just to kind of reframe this question just a little bit. See, a loving God doesn't want to send us to hell. That's my answer. This is my answer too. Our God wants to save us from hell. We ask the question, but the answer isn't he doesn't send us. We send us. See, we have the choice to follow him because he didn't make us robots and he gave us free will is what it's called. It was really a choice to love him, to understand him, to follow him. And that's loving in and of itself, by the way, but that's not even enough for the love of God. See, not only does he say, I loved you. He also says, I created you. And he also says, I love you so much. I give you a chance to love me back. And he also sends Jesus because we've messed it up so much that he still wants to have a right relationship with us. So you're right. A loving God doesn't want to send us to hell. He doesn't want us to be destroyed. He wants to save us. And he's done everything needed to do so through Jesus and the cross. And it's not based in fear. It's not even based in condemnation, it's based in love. The whole thing is based in love. So if this is true, if hell is real, and Jesus is real, and heaven is real, what do we do? Well, I think the first thing, and this is important so we can't skate by it, we follow Jesus. That's the first thing we do. Do you see how profound that is? So if like the rich man in Luke 16, if hell is that real place and it is a place of suffering and punishment, we follow Jesus, we surrender our lives to him is another way we say that because he's worthy of our praise, because he's our savior, literally from punishment and suffering and hell. We follow Jesus and how amazing it is that we have an opportunity to do so, that we have an opportunity to do what he says and live like he suggests and surrender our lives to him. Now, 2 Peter 3, nine says a word, and it's a word some of us might consider more of a cuss word than H-E-double hockey sticks. So we're going to put 2 Peter 3, nine back up. It's this word right here. It's this word repent. Watch your mouth, Adam. We don't like this word. We're uncomfortable with this word. I think we're actually more uncomfortable with the word repent than we are with the word help. So let's address this head on, okay? Culturally in the New Testament, second part of the Bible, when people heard the word or the call or the command to repent, they knew exactly what that meant. It was a normal word, normal word that normal people used in normal situations. It wasn't particularly theological. It wasn't particularly spiritual. It kind of means this, repent means to change my mind about something. So here's the example that I use. Say you're driving down the highway, but you're going the wrong direction. I mean, you've passed all of the wrong way, wrong way, wrong way signs. And I don't know how, and I don't know why, but you got turned around and you are hurtling down the interstate and it is dangerous. It's life threatening. People are honking at you. People are waving at you in really unpleasant ways using one finger. Like they are angry that you are doing this because it is dangerous, not just to you, but to them. And then you realize, oh no, oh no, I'm going the wrong direction. So what do you do? You immediately get to the side of the road. You put your blinkers on. And at the next possible opportunity, you start turning around and going the other direction. What is that? You've repented. You've changed your mind about the direction you're going and you started going the other direction. Now notice, if you realize that you're heading in the wrong direction, that you're going down the wrong direction, and you realize, oh no, I'm going the wrong direction, and you just shrug your shoulders, and you say, "What well, the H-E double hockey sticks, that's not repenting. Just being aware is not a pe- repenting. Repenting is changing your mind and then changing your actions. It's both. So. If you are going down and you turn around, that's what repentant is. You've changed your mind about this direction you should be driving, and then you've corrected that. So in the New Testament, repentance is associated with a change of mind and then a redirection. But I want to be clear, repentance is not a bad word. It's not a cuss word. It is a glorious word. It's an amazing, hope-filled word because it's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us, that we have an opportunity to make mistake and turn around. How amazing is that? How loving is that? And maybe you've said a prayer about following Jesus, and that's good, and that's important, and we do that sometimes around here too. But I also believe that following Jesus should fundamentally turn us around, should change our behavior, and maybe not all at once. But as we grow closer and closer to Jesus... It should change some things as we become more and more like Jesus. We stop going down the wrong side of the highway. So that's the first thing that understanding that if hell is real and heaven is real and Jesus is real, we should follow Jesus. Here's the second thing. We should also bring others to Jesus. So the rich man is in a bad situation. He's in hell. Do you see what he does immediately? Upon realizing the truth, he immediately began to beg and plead for his family to also know the truth. Do you know somebody who doesn't know or follow Jesus? Maybe a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a coworker. Take a second right now and allow somebody to come to mind who in your life doesn't know or doesn't follow Jesus. That person could be in the same situation as the rich man. Because the position here on earth doesn't matter whether they're successful or not, happy or not, wealthy or not. Without Jesus, it's nothing. So how motivated would you be if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that hell was real? Now, here's the thing, I can't necessarily prove this. There's no study on this, but if I were the devil, I would absolutely try to convince you to make you think that hell wasn't real. That's the tactic I'd use. I would try to make sure you didn't take it seriously because if you don't take it seriously, the rest of the stuff doesn't matter. We'd live however we want. We'd be as self-focused as we want. We'd go for what feels good or what seems right to us and look for the most comfortable path through life. But if the devil is real and hell is real and Jesus and heaven are real, it should cause us to desperately want to do whatever it takes to reach our community for Christ. And not too long ago, I was, uh, I was chatting with a friend of mine here in town and I, I've known them for a few years and we were, we were talking and chatting and I invited them to church. Actually, I invited them to the Christmas Eve services here uh, at the Ridge. And they started to tear up and they looked me dead in the eye and they said, what took you so long to invite me? I mean, my stomach dropped into my toes because they don't know if they believe what I believe. Actually, they didn't come to the Christmas Eve service. They don't know what they believe about all of this stuff. But they do understand that if I loved them or I even liked them, I would care about them going to church and I would care about them making decisions to follow Jesus because they know I believe that this is an eternal life or an eternal death type of thing. Do you follow Jesus? Do you know somebody else who doesn't? Does your behavior show that it matters? See, if hell is real and heaven is real and Jesus is real, we follow Jesus because of who he is and what he's done and his love for us. We also repent. We change our minds and directions and, and follow him with everything we've got. We also do whatever it takes to reach our community for Christ. We bring other people to Jesus because we believe it's true and we believe that following Jesus brings hope and joy and peace not just for today but also For eternity. I'd like to pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, we're uncomfortable, I think, a little bit with kind of the the heaven-hell conversation. It's much more comfortable for us to maybe ignore it or maybe think that, hey, that part isn't real. The part that makes us feel good is real. So what we ask you right now is just to help us, guide us through that, through that doubt. But I thank you so much for the fact that you love us so much that you sent Jesus. And that as you send Jesus in perfect love, you give us this lifeline, this opportunity to surrender and to follow and to be saved by you. And it's not like the trite fire insurance type stuff, it's hope. Thank you for your love that while in the middle of us still being, falling short of your standard and being a sinner, that you sent Jesus to die on the cross and that on the cross it leads to an empty tomb where you've conquered death and it leads to no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain in heaven with you because of your love. So help us live that out this week. Help us live out your love. Help us interact with people in a way that this is true and that we live like it matters. Help us turn around on some of those highways where we're going down and we shouldn't be and we know it. Help us repent and turn around. And what, what an amazing source of love that is. Draw us to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.